2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll give you a moment to find it. I'm going to read for us just the first eight verses. And then we'll pray and then we'll get started with the sermon. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Beginning of verse 1, the word of God says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly." Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Let's pray. Well, Father, again, we praise your name for the great privilege of being able to gather, to be able to open up your word, to be able to hear from you, to be able to hear you speak to us. And so I pray as we open up your scriptures, that you will show to us your glory, that you will show us the glory of your only Son. No matter where we are in the Bible, we seek to find our Savior. And so I pray that we would find him today as we peer into Second Samuel and, and try to mine the gold that is there for us, even as Christians. So please bless, bless my mouth, bless hearer alike. May your spirit edify your church today. May we leave here greater worship, worshipers of you than when we came. Bless the, bless the preaching and bless our fellowship today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to start off today with a question, a question maybe you've asked yourself, and this question is, have you ever wondered why the Son of God, why did not Jesus Christ come into this world immediately following the fall of Adam and Eve? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought why, uh, why Eve's first child was not the Messiah? Have you ever wondered why Christ didn't come in Genesis chapter 4 uh, to redeem his people from their sin? Well, I suppose that God could have chosen to do this. Um, he most certainly can do whatever he pleases. But as we know, this was not uh, God's plan for redemption. 
our God had a much more intricate, a much more elaborate plan through which he would redeem his people. You see, God was committed to providing his people with thousands of years of preparatory theology and preparatory doctrine through the scriptures, through scriptural prophecy, through gospel pictures given to us through what the Bible refers to as types and shadows. And so it was God's intention that he would gradually and progressively reveal the glorious details and truth behind his son's coming over a very long period of time, but I think for a very particular reason. See, God was patiently instructing his people through all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament scriptures. Excuse me, if that was me. I think God was patiently doing this so that through all these preparatory pictures, God's people might be able to fully understand and grasp the greatness and the complexity of all that Jesus Christ would actually come and accomplish through his incarnation, through his life, through his death, and through his rising again. See, I think if Jesus Christ would have come and laid down his life in Genesis chapter 4, I'm not sure that the people of God would have fully understood concepts such as substitutionary atonement. I don't know that the people of God would have under, fully understood this um, apart from the Mosaic law and all the preparatory sacrifices of the Old Covenant. I don't think the people of God would have grasped the significance of the sacrifice of God's one and only Son if they had not been given a, a picture first, for instance, of Abraham nearly sacrificing his only son on Mount Moriah. And brothers and sisters, I'm not sure we would fully understand and appreciate the grace and the mercy that we have received as Gentiles without first having read and seen through the scriptures that for thousands of years, God showed his wrath and his, wrath and his judgment against nation upon nation. And so it's these attributes of God, the, the last ones that I mentioned, his grace and mercy in particular, that I want us to consider today from an old covenant perspective. I want us to consider God's grace and mercy through a typological perspective, through a preparatory perspective. Because there's one man in the old covenant who exceptionally typifies for us our gracious king and savior. This old covenant type of our merciful king Jesus for our consideration today is the man King David, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Zion. Now, uh, just a preparatory remark, um, any time that you're looking into the Old Testament and noticing what appears to be to you uh, typological accounts of what the Lord Jesus Christ would eventually come and do, um, as you do this, there should most certainly be a, a careful trepidation, a trepidation about drawing conclusions or connections from the Old Covenant that may not be God-intended connections to what Jesus Christ would actually come and do. And, and this rightful caution should always be employed, especially if the New Testament authors themselves have not made the connection that you think you're seeing in the Old Testament. Uh, in other words, as you're looking for Christ in the Old Testament, there is always the possibility of wandering off into some sor sort of imagined or allegorical interpretation of the Scripture. Um, but I think as we set out today to consider King David, uh, with this man we can proceed with a little more boldness. 
And this is because the New Testament authors themselves affirm this man. They affirm the role that King David played as a preparatory type of the king of Zion who was to come. We've seen, for example, in the book of Hebrews, how Melchizedek was set forth as a clear type of Jesus Christ as a high priest. In the same way, we see throughout all of the New Testament, really, where King David is set forth as a type of Christ and his role as king over his people. Um, I want us to look at one example um, just, just by way of preparation for you before we dive into 2 Samuel. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Because in Psalm chapter 2, we have one of the favorite examples of this connection being made by the New Testament authors between David and Jesus Christ. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Let me just read a few verses from that. And we'll just note how the New Testament authors make the connections between David and Christ. Let me just read Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And it sounds like you fixed something, Robert, because it's not breaking up. So thank you, brother. I don't know what, what was going on. But let me read for us verse 6. It says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now this text, historically, would have been a text whereby God would have been making a pronouncement, a, pronoun a pronouncement over his installation and approval of his anointing of a new king over his people, Israel. A text that very likely could have been read over King David himself as he ascended to the throne of Israel as king. And in Psalm 2, I'm sure you've noticed that God gives a very interesting and significant title in verses 7 and verses 12 to this king. He refers to the king as his son. And so the question is, why did God use this word? Why did God refer to his king as his son? Well, the New Testament authors actually tell us why this is, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, uh, the pastor of, and the author of the book of Hebrews uh, tells us that this statement, particularly found in Psalm 2-7, where God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that this statement was ultimately being spoken to Jesus Christ. It was obviously being spoken prophetically. And so what we see is, uh, originally God pronounces this kingly sonship over King David as he ascends the throne of Jerusalem. Uh, but if you notice, turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 32 now. As God originally pronounced this over the king of Jerusalem, Paul says in Acts chapter 13 
that this kingly sonship is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ's ascension from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 13, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says this, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. See, the blessings of David. So can you see how David played this significant and important role as a preparatory type of the ultimate king who was to come? A king who was going to come and not simply ascend to the throne of Zion in Jerusalem, but to the throne of, of what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 refers to as the throne in Mount Zion. That is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, as I said, all this was kind of just preparatory uh, due to the fact that um, it's been 11 months since we've had our Emmaus conference and the conference that we hold where we go into great details and how it is that we're supposed to uh, see our Savior even in the Old Covenant Scriptures, and it's still a month before our next one. So I felt like since it's been so long, since we really dove into that, I would do a little preparatory introduction, a little MacArthur-esque long introduction. Um, but let's dive now into our text. Uh, go ahead and turn back to 2 Samuel. Um, in 2 Samuel here, uh, we're peering into a very interesting account of what I believe to be an obviously typological description of the amazing grace and mercy that's extended from the king of Zion to his undeserving, helpless enemy. A typological grace and mercy that's fulfilled in every one of us here who have received the grace and mercy of the king of the heavenly Mount Zion. And so as we consider our text, um, I don't know when the last time is that you've read through 2 Samuel. I thought it might be fitting to give a very quick rundown of the context. Um, I, I'm sure you know the story. But what we have is in 2 Samuel chapter 1, King Saul has just been killed um, as, along with some of his, his children, including Jonathan. They've just been killed in battle against the Philistines. And it's this death of King Saul that opens up the door for King David to ascend and to fill the spot and fill the role as king of Israel. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, he, he fills the, the throne as king of Judah. Eventually in chapter 5, he's now made king over Israel as well. And I couldn't help but mention 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to turn back um, to note this um, this word spoken to King David as he's ascended to the throne of Israel. Um, notice what God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God says this to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, right off the bat, as God establishes this man, King David, over his people, he, God gives him a promise. 
a promise of another king to come, actually a greater king to come whose kingdom will be established forever. Now, that's the king who's to come. But historically in 2 Samuel, what we have is King David ascending to the throne and with his ascension is coming, uh, what, as you'll see, it's a very unexpected and a very amazing extension of mercy to one of his enemies. And so what we're going to do as we examine this mercy of the king, we're going to note three characteristics of the king's mercy. Number one, we're going to see that an extension of mercy comes from the very nature of the king of Israel. It flows out of his very nature. Second, we're going to see that the king of Israel's mercy is a covenantal mercy. It's based on covenant. And then third, we're going to see that his mercy is unconditional. It's unconditional, meaning there's nothing in the recipient of his grace and mercy that merits this grace and mercy. So let's start off here with, the, with this first point, um, the fact that the king of Israel's extension of mercy is a natural outflow from his very nature. Now let me tell you where I get this idea from, that, that grace and mercy are innate characteristics of the king. Um, I think this is seen in the significance of the timing of this gracious act of King David to show mercy to the descendants of Saul. Uh, because in chapter 8, David has just now finally really established his kingdom, really established his, his place on the throne by bringing peace. He's, he's suppressed the enemies around him. He's been fighting. He's been fighting and defeating and suppressing even that great enemy, the Philistines, who had just killed King Saul. And it's right on the heels of King David here establishing himself as the rightful and powerful ruler of God's people Israel that we find him not uh, caught up uh, in being uh, overwhelmingly bloodthirsty, but just the opposite. We find the king to be merciful. And so let me read for us again the first three verses of our text, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, to see this again. It says, Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may, that I may wipe them out as well? No, that's not what he says. He says, No, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Now what's so interesting about this decision for King David to be showing mercy here, it's just amazing to me that he even had this thought in his mind, if you know the history that King David had uh, with King Saul in particular. And, and I think as we read this, you really need to, um, as you read the narratives, especially of the Old Testament, you need to try to put yourself um, in King David's shoes here for a moment. Because as we're all familiar with, King Saul had been bringing great persecution against David. It all began back in 1 Samuel 18. Um, if you remember there, we're, uh, go ahead and turn there really quickly. 1 Samuel 18. Um, the Lord had been blessing King David's uh, battles and his military efforts that he was fighting for King Saul. And um, picking up in 1 Samuel 18, 
particular, maybe verse, um, verse 7, where the Lord had been blessing David's battles, and it says that the women sang as they played and said, Saul has, sl- has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then Saul became very angry for this saying, displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that very day on. That's where it all began for this enmity between David and King Saul, and it didn't stop there. Um, King David's suspicion of David led him to um, rampant sin against David. Um, on more than one occasion, King Saul tried to pin David to a wall with a spear. Um, King Saul sent David out to fight against the Philistines on numerous occasions, hoping that he would die in those battles. Saul gave David his, his daughter Michal with the hopes that she would stumble David by her worship of idols. And then Saul sent assassins to King David's house to kill him, and he was forced to flee out of a window and eventually actually live amongst the Philistines themselves. And so I think if you can try to imagine the hatred and the bitterness that could have developed in the heart of of David for anyone who even shared the name, the family name of King Saul, I think this is a rare, very rare grace and mercy that we're seeing here from the king of Israel And I want you to consider just how uncommon this kind of grace and mercy actually was historically coming from a king, even a king over the people of God. Uh, Remember that David had just obtained the kingdom from King Saul. And as I'm going to show you here, it was far from customary to leave any remnant of the previous dynasty alive, let alone show them the kindness of God. Let me read the words of Dale Ralph Davis to you in his comments upon this merciful move of the king. This is what Del Ralph Davis says in his, his uh, commentary on 1 Samuel. He says, When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay right within the pages of biblical history and watch, for instance, Bashaw in 1 Kings 15 or Zimri in 1 Kings 16 or Jehu in 2 Kings 10. Uh, to find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. And I read all those accounts that he mentions, and I can affirm that what David is doing here is certainly not the norm. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis goes on to say, The new king always needs to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. And everybody practiced it. See, what King David here is doing is exceptional. The safest thing, what Del Ralph Davis is saying is that the safest thing King David could have done was to wipe out every trace of King Saul's family so that there was no potential for somebody else to ascend and regain the throne. But what we find King David doing is, is instead showing mercy Did not God himself say in 1 Samuel chapter 13 that David was a man after his own heart? And I think we can see that here in just this act of King David. Because we see, like God, David has a nature to not only mete out a a just 
wrath, a, a wrath which David certainly did mete out on his enemies, uh, but we also see that he has a nature, a very nature that desires to extend grace and mercy. And so King David, like King Jesus, has this heart, a very nature that desires to extend mercy to those who are even rightfully his enemies. And this is an attribute of our king that we should be very, very thankful for. Now, there's also another reason, moving really on to the second point, there's another reason here that the king of Zion has chosen to show mercy to one who ought to be his enemy. And this is the reason that he has actually previously entered willfully into a covenant, into a covenant, a, a sacred bond, as, as Pastor Emilio has so helpfully described uh, the nature of a covenant. It's a sacred bond. So as I seek to establish this fact that um, this mercy that King David's showing is based on covenant, um, there are a couple of indications here in our text that this is why King David is also showing mercy. And uh, you're going to have to follow me here because 2 Samuel chapter 9 does not actually mention the word berit. It does not actually mention the Hebrew word for covenant. Um, but there is another word, if you notice. Look in verses 1, uh, verses 3, and verses 7. Find the word translated there, kindness. The word translated, kindness. This is going to be the first clue that we know that king, the king's grace is covenantal. Um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And in verse 3, he says the very similar thing. Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? See, that word translated kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is so commonly associated with the term covenant that, for instance, Robert Burgeon in his commentary, the, the New American Commentary on First and Second Samuel, he says, he says that term is so often associated with covenant that it could, it could be seen and even translated as a covenantal faithfulness or a covenantal kindness, you see. But not only does the prophet Samuel uh, merely hint at the notion of covenant here by using the word said, he's actually already explicitly recorded for us David's having entered into a covenant with the house of Saul. And so let's note that. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're not still there, I'm still there. Um, and pick up in verse 57. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 57. Um, here we find ourselves very early in the life of David. He's, making, he's being bound by covenant very early on in his, his life. He's still a young man here. This scene is, is following immediately after his battle with Goliath. And so pick up in verse 57 where it says... When David returned from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your, ser your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as, his, as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as, his, as himself. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. You see, that's where the covenant began. Now turn a couple pages over, probably to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, pick up with me in verse 5. Pick up with me in verse 5 here, just to see how this covenantal relationship continues and develops between King Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. Uh, at this point already, in just a couple turns of a page, David is now fleeing from King Saul and hiding. And in verse 5 it says, So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to be sitting down to eat with the king. That's referring to sitting down with King Saul. He says, But let me go, that I may, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. And pay attention to verse 8. David says, therefore, deal, deal kindly. That's our word, said. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. See, I bring you there just to see that close association with this, the word has said, to deal kindly with the word covenant. Um, if you peek over, look at verse, uh, verses 14, 15, and 16 of the same chapter in chapter 20, because we see uh, that similar um, connection. If you notice in verse 14 and 15, the word has said is there translated loving kindness. A loving kindness. And what I'm saying is that that word has said carries with it such a covenantal thrust that if you have an NASB, I hope you do, you can see this. Because notice verse 16, it says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. See, in the NASB, the word covenant's italicized because the word berit is not actually in the text. But coming out of a few verses where it's speaking of this hased, this loving kindness, uh, the authors know and can infer that this is speaking of a covenantal loving kindness based on a previous covenant. You see that? That's, that's really what my point was back in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you want to turn back there, because what we're seeing is King David's de desire to show kindness to the house of Saul. This kindness is based on a covenant. The kindness of King David was based on a covenant he previously entered into with the house of Saul. And it's interesting, uh, I didn't make a lot out of this, but in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, it's, it's not simply the, the kindness of David that's being shown, it's the kindness of God. I thought that was very interesting language. And so, King David, just as with King Jesus, extends a mercy and a grace that is based on a previous, a previous covenantal bond See, David's covenant here to show mercy was made with the house of Saul. Jesus' covenantal uh, decision to show mercy uh, was made amongst the other two persons of the Trinity before time began. It was a covenant where the Son of God agreed to show loving kindness to some of the house of Adam, those who in time would actually be his very enemies. And so Christ Jesus, based on his sacred bond with the Father and the Spirit, was willing to extend us grace and mercy 
and not his judgment. I think this covenantal faithfulness, again, the covenantal faithfulness of our king is another attribute of his for which we should be very, very thankful. We can thank God for the covenant of redemption. Let's look now at the third. Move on now to the third and last aspect of the king's mercy here that I want us to consider in the text. This is the unconditional nature of the king's mercy. The unconditional nature of his mercy, meaning there's nothing in this recipient of the king's mercy that warrants this mercy. There's nothing in this this one who deserves this mercy. And so pick back up with me in the narrative, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, and just consider, notice the condition of this one who gets to receive the king's mercy. In verse 3 it said again, the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul, of the house of Saul to, whom, to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Crippled in both feet. And so notice first this fact that was a fact that's so significant to the prophet Samuel as he's writing this. Notice that he actually ends the chapter by repeating this fact that this descendant of Saul, who King David is mercying, is crippled in both feet. He's crippled in both feet. I think this is significant um, due to the fact that this grace that he is receiving uh, from the king will be just that. It will be grace and grace alone because as a crippled man, uh, he has nothing to offer the king. This man cannot work. He cannot fight. This man cannot even take care of himself. Um, as you study this passage, some of the more liberal scholars will, will say things uh, that they believe that King David is bringing this man from the house of Saul close to himself so he can keep his eye on him to prevent him from regaining the throne. Um, maybe so that he can, David can keep him under his thumb, but I don't see this as being likely. I don't think anybody, a cripple like this, would have any chance of of, of reigning on the throne as king of Israel. No, I think the king of Israel here was showing an unconditional uh, mercy to this man. This man was a descendant of the king's enemy and was therefore naturally an enemy himself to the king. Um, but despite this obvious enmity, King David shows him mercy. You know, as, I, as I've read through this passage, um, I can't help but be reminded of the, the similarity between us and this crippled man in the fact that we in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer uh, the sovereign king, um, yet he has showed us mercy. Uh, in fact, the Bible actually describes us, brothers and sisters, as being in a much worse case than simply being crippled. Uh, the Bible describes us as being dead, dead in our sins and transgressions. And, um, and, the, and yet the Lord, in an, in an act Rooted in his own gracious nature, uh, bound by a covenant, uh, the king willfully took our sins upon himself so that we might live, so that we might be able to live and, and serve our gracious king with, with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Um, as I think about this, I just notice how, how the antitype, how the grace of Christ just is infinitely greater than this type, in the, in, as you notice the typology the grace of Christ and the grace that's to come is infinitely greater than what we're seeing with King David. Um, 
So have only, having only looked at five verses up to this point, um, I want us to try to move really quickly now um, through the rest of this narrative because I want us to notice, I think it's worth noting, the response of this enemy of the king as he's called into the king's presence. Let me read this text again, beginning in verse 6. It says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. That word regularly is in this text many times, and I can't say it, so forgive me. Again, notice verse 8. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? You see, Mephibosheth is right to prostrate himself before the king. I don't know at this point if, if, if Mephibosheth knew if he was there for blessing or for curse, for life or for death, um, but either way, either way, the right response to being in the presence of God's anointed king is a face-first prostration, um, which Mephibosheth does, even though he's being crippled, he probably, he does it rightly, um, probably very awkwardly, as you can imagine, to crippled, but he prostrates himself and bows low before the king. And what is the outcome for him? What a blessed day can you imagine for this man, for this crippled and helpless man, as King David says to him in verse 7, do not fear. Do not fear, he says. Um, these would be blessed words to this grandson of Saul who's been hiding in fear, actually, where it says he's in Lodabar. He's actually um, in a far-off place. He had to flee uh, at the death of King Saul as he lost his kingdom. Uh, his grandson fled, and um, he's in this far-off town, seemingly out of notice and out of sight of this new king of Israel. But amazingly, he hears from the king now, do not fear. Um, Notice what else the king gives to him after he tells him not to fear in verse 7. I think this is very interesting. He gives him a land promise, a land promise. David said, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. Now, I'm sure Saul had taken to himself as king the choicest parts of the land. This land is now being given to Mephibosheth. And then as the text goes on, as if it's grace upon grace, King David says to Mephibosheth, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Regularly. I don't know how that sounds to you, but it sounds strange to me when I say regularly. But can you imagine, can you grasp the significance of this statement and this promise from King David to this man? Think about who sits at the king's table. It's only the, the most highly esteemed of the king. It would be the king's family. It would be his most trusted friends, his most trusted advisors. But at the table of the king of Israel is a helpless and worthless fallen descendant of the king's enemy. One who by the king's grace has certainly been clothed in the finest clothes and is made not just to visit the table on occasion, 
But as I've been trying to say in verse 7, it says he will be there regularly. And in verse 11 says he will be there as one of the king's sons. What, a, what an amazing day for this man. Uh, this was a day for Mephibosheth that certainly all of the old things had passed away and all things had become new. And again, I think the response of this man to receiving the king's grace is so fitting. The grace that he received did not puff him up. It did not cause him to think unrightly and unreasonably about himself. But even upon the declaration of this great grace in verse 8, Mephibosheth said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? You see, I think the unconditional and unmerited grace of God should humble us as well. I think we should have a very similar reaction to the king. I don't think you've even... Uh, fully understood the biblical concept of unconditional election and unconditional grace unless, unless you've made a statement like this. Unless at some point you've come to God and said, God, why me? Why have you saved a dead dog like me? Once you're at that point, you've understood the grace of the king. As the text goes on to show... Um, this promise from the king is not just an empty promise, uh, but the king is going to deliver on his word. And I, I just want to read through this to see, uh, just to see the fulfillment of this promise being brought to light. Pick up in verse 9 with me. It says, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So... Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. I think, brothers and sisters, that what we have in this chapter is a beautiful picture of the king's grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. I think it's a picture that paints the very gospel of Jesus Christ to us, a gospel of grace that we all need to take part of. We all need this grace. And the reason we all need this grace is because we are all Mephibosheths. We have all in our sin and shame fled from the king of Zion and yet this king, who could do whatever he wants with any of his enemies, this king has, de has decided to show mercy. And those who have received the king's mercy respond in the same way that Mephibosheth did. They recognize their worthlessness. They, con they confess to being a dead dog before the king. But it's these enemies, it's these enemies of the king who he exalts to sit at the table with him in heaven forever. It's the servants who, based on his offer of mercy, repent and put all of their hope and all of their trust in the king's power to save. 
Now, we all know that the throne of King Jesus is more glorious than that of King David's. We know that his kingdom is superior than the kingdom that David had in Israel. And we know that Jesus' grace is greater than the grace that David extended. You see, King Jesus has the authority not just to provide you with a a comfortable life like King David extended to Mephibosheth. King Jesus gives us eternal life in his presence forever. For those of us who have actually received this grace from King Jesus, we must never forget that we are, uh, we are and in still a sense are Mephibosheths. We are those who were far off and have been called near by his grace. Um, I know that I myself have, have left myself a reminder, actually, of this grace, um, a reminder based on Uh, verse 12 here, where it says that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. I left myself a reminder in in naming my son Canon Micah Matthews. I gave him this name because I wanted the, the perpetual reminder of the reality that I am but a helpless recipient of God's grace. And I want to remind my son that any benefits any benefits that he receives in being the son of a Christian are all based on a merciful God's covenantal and unconditional grace. And so my hope is that this truth and this reality uh, and this reminder of the grace that we've received from the King of Glory uh, will bring us all to a renewed thankfulness, to a renewed appreciation for the saving grace that we have received. Let's pray. Well, Father, God, we thank you for all of your scriptures. Father, we thank you for everything that you have graciously spoken in your word to your people. God, I pray that we would be given the mind of Christ, that we would see how every promise that you've given is yes and amen in Christ. Lord, give us discernment as we read our Bibles, open up our minds to what it is that you are saying to your people. Let us benefit every time we crack open our Bibles. Lord, let our lives be just an endless growth, an endless edification, an endless furthering of our relationship with you as we see in truth our helplessness, our pitiful condition apart from Christ. And God, every time we open our Bible, show us our Savior. Show us Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of being able to gather in peace today and in comfort and to be able to worship you. Lord, receive our song now. In Jesus' name, amen.